Hi, my name is Robert McMahon. I'm the Connection Director here at Covenant Church, and I'm thrilled that you're listening. If you're checking us out for the first time, welcome. We're so glad that you're here, and I'd like to take this chance to invite you to let us know that you're tuning in today. We'd love nothing more than to help you start building meaningful relationships and to join you on the journey of faith. Just go to bgcovenant.org connect and let us know how we can be in touch. With that said, let's dive in and listen together to this week's message. This week we're finishing, actually, uh, our Galatians series. We've been in five, this is five out of six weeks. This is week number six. Galatians, Jesus plus nothing is our sermon series. And what we are hoping to get out of this, we've been hoping to kind of pull on this thread of this letter. This is Apostle Paul's kind of angriest letter. He's really calling to task the people of Galatia. And we've seen this in bits and pieces. Last week we saw um, a little bit of his righteous indignation. We're going to see the opposite side of that today. And so what we're going to do to get there is just jump right into the scripture. And that's going to be in Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. Paul writes this, brothers and sisters, if somebody is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves, or you may also be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. If anyone thinks they are something when they are not, they deceive themselves. Each one should test their own actions. Then they can take pride in themselves alone without comparing themselves to someone else. For each one should carry their own load. Nevertheless, the one who receives instruction in the word should share all good things with their instructor." What we see in this portion of Paul's letter really quickly is compassion is fueled by the Spirit. He says, restore that person gently. You who live by the Spirit should restore someone who's in error gently. I said last week we talked about righteous indignation and how I kind of encouraged you to find some, find some holy anger at times. It's okay to fight for faith. It's okay to be upset when the world is going sideways, when a brother or sister is going outside of the bounds of, of what God has invited us to be. And today, the bookend to that is there's also this other side of that righteous anger, which is this gentle restoration. Restoration, as you might know, is all the rage. Everybody is into restoration. You may not, you may not know you're into restoration, but the television, the television tells me restoration. Television is someone, somewhere, restoring something. A house, restaurant restoration, relationship restoration, everybody's restoring things. I think what it is, really, when we look at the world around us and we see all of the restoration happening, is is it's a peek into the greatest, deepest longings of our hearts. I think the reason you like Joanna Gaines is because on some level it's a reflection of what you hope for in Jesus. On some level, we all hope that there is some external force that can come in and make sense of our brokenness, that there's some external force that can come in and with a little bit of shiplap and some greenery here, maybe, just maybe, can get me fixed. And yet, life sort of feels like a demolition derby, doesn't it? Like we want restoration and yet we look around and we just see We see everyone crushing everyone. We see a culture that is uh, everyone's at everyone's throat. Politicians are just burying each other. Same party, doesn't matter. Protesters show up and then counter-protesters show up to protest the protesters. Everyone is shouting, everyone is raging. And so you and I, we start asking, where is the hope here? Like, where is the hope of restoration? And we, we keep going deeper into looking for restoration in these escapist routes, but there doesn't seem to be restoration. 
We want to be made new. We want to be made whole. And then we misplace our hope in all kinds of things, don't we? I think maybe, maybe, well, I want to be made new, so I'll get a new outfit. But that doesn't last very long. I get a new gadget. I get a new car. get a new career. And those things work for a minute, but they never really satisfy. But it's our longing for restoration that drives us into the desiring of new things at every turn. Paul is talking here about how we restore others. You who live by the Spirit should restore another gently, but but watch yourselves, he says, watch yourselves, because self-deception lurks around the corner. You've heard it said that comparison is the thief of joy. You've heard this. I think it's true. We say that around our house sometimes. I would say comparison is also the heart of self-deception. Comparison is the easiest way to practice self-deception. If you're a person, let's say this way, if you're a person with an inferiority complex, you're an inferiority complex, you can always find someone who's doing better. You can deceive yourself into thinking you're worse just by finding someone doing better. So let's say you just bought a brand new kayak. We have a couple kayakers in the house. Nice, it's fun, you power yourself, doesn't require gas. Get out on the river, relax, heart rate slows down, except it speeds up because you got to, but you know, you get the idea. Kayak, that's great. At some point, you go, you know what, I, don't, I think I'm out of the kayak game. I think, I'm in, I think I want a boat. So you get a boat. And that's nice because now, you know, this fuel is better than this fuel. And you start, this is great. I could take a boat. I like a boat. I'm a boat guy. I've got to be pretty rich. i got a boat. Lots of boats. I have six boats. You know what you don't have? You don't have Jeff Bezos' boat. It's longer than a football field. Think about that. You're walking on a boat that's 470 feet, 417 feet long. I won't point out all of the little things there, but there's some things. There's some little things that are happening. It's not even the biggest super yacht in the world. It's like half as long as the biggest one, but it's pretty incredible. It only costs half a billion dollars. It has propellers that can go, but they still put masts up because it looks cooler to have a sail. So they did a lot of things. How You know you need... Um, you know you're pretty important and you have a pretty good boat and that your boat and your kayak aren't that great. When you have a boat that requires a second boat for the first boat, this is the support vessel that goes with his yacht. If your support vessel for your first boat has a helipad, you're doing all right. And yet even Jeff Bezos can look and be like, but somebody else has a nicer boat, a bigger boat. And you look around, you go, I got this pontoon boat. I thought it was a lot of fun, but I'm no Jeff Bezos. I don't even have a support vessel. I was going to make some spouse jokes there, but I'm not going to make any of those. Um, It's a comparison of this type when we live in this inferiority complex. Comparison of this type leads us to a miserable existence rooted in our insecurity. I can always find somebody doing better. I can always find somebody with more. I can always find someone whose spiritual walk is healthier. I can always find a church that looks a little nicer. I can can always find it. What if you're a person with a superiority complex? You usually get off the hook in this, but not today. What if you have a superiority complex and you go, you know what, I think I'm doing all right. You compared to those people, I'm okay. You can always find someone who's doing worse. Trouble finding motivation to clean the house? Just turn on hoarders, right? I mean, look at these people. Much easier to turn on the television than pick up a broom. Look how awful their life is. I feel better already. 
This is a similarly miserable existence, also rooted in insecurity. Both practices of self-deception. And what Paul is saying is if you practice this comparison living, you are practicing a life of self-deception because either way you go, no matter what your proclivity and your weakness in this area, no matter which way you go, you're going to a place of untruth. You're self-deceiving all the way through life. Explain it another way. You know how some people only give directions based on landmarks? You ever ask for directions? And instead of saying uh, an address, like, you know, humans in a civilized society, we have addresses, X, Y, Z, street. Instead of that, they'll say, well, you're going to want to go like six blocks north of that last gas station on your left. You take a, I think it's a right, and then it's the house across from the house with the fish mailbox and the tree that's kind of over it. I don't, it's kind of like upside down J, and that's, that's where we live. I cannot handle these directions. People give these directions, and I'm like, does it have a number? Like, well, it does. But what you're going to want to do is you're going to look for the winery, and when you see that, you'll know you're about halfway there, and then you're going to want to take a left around the, the swivel turn. What's a swivel turn? Doesn't matter. You'll see it. And then on the top of the hill, if it's light out, you're going to see a, and I'm just going, I'm out. I'm done. I'm never coming to see you. It's not happening. <laughs> I struggle with this. Essentially, when someone gives me comparison directions, these are, these are comparison directions. I think of a theme park map. This is what I'm doing. This is what you gave me. <laughs> Take a left at the churros. You might, you know, I just, I'm out. I, I don't know where I am. You end up in the wrong section of the park. I'm just trying to find the water park, and you end up in Bell's Castle, and you don't know what's happening. And this is comparison directions. Everything's out of scale. Nothing quite makes sense. The whole world on a theme park map is warped. Nothing is right. This is the trap of comparison. When we live in the, the trap of comparison, what we are doing is living in a world that's out of scale. We're living in a world where reality has been warped, and we're just going to choose to say it's okay. So, so if I say, where are you right now? Like, where are you? On some soul level, where are you? If you only know based on others, you have an issue today. How's your life going how is your marriage? How is your heart? How is your faith? If you say, well, I'm better than them, or it could be worse, you're practicing comparison living. And my fear is you're living in self-deception. Because you didn't answer the question. No, no, how are you doing? Not how are you doing in relation to or in comparison to. How are you? Paul says, test your actions not in relation to others. It's a trick, attempting to trick ourselves, or Paul says, we are attempting, attempting to trick God in this. As if he's unaware. Verse 7, we pick up the scripture. Paul says, do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows, and whoever sows to please their flesh from the flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the Spirit from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. So we say, yeah, Lord, but at least I'm not like them. Paul says, don't be deceived. God can't be mocked. Come on. Yeah, but I'm, I'm not like them, Lord. And God looks down and goes, man, you are mocking me. Who do you think I am? You think I can't see that? You think I know, know better? What, 
mocking is something in our culture. This is very common in our culture, right? It's when you do something, the other person's back is turned or they're not looking and they say something and, well, you do it like our friend Dwight Schrute from the office. Let's just sit. That's mocking. He did it again. One more time. There it is. That's mocking. Why? I mean... Each of us finds our inner teenager. No offense, my teenager. And in a culture soaked in sarcasm and irony, when, when someone's not looking, you make a face. You roll your eyes, whatever. You have your form. We all have our form of, of mockery. Paul's saying you cannot fool God. There's no such thing as doing something behind God's back. But we still think we're being clever. We think in our deception that maybe God will believe that I'm something I'm not. You can't trick God into thinking you're following Jesus or trusting him by faking it or by comparison. Well, God, at least I'm not like, and he goes, you know. You can fool me, like I'm easily fooled. And this is where I think we get this idea, we can fool each other. You can come in and shake my hand warmly in the foyer and good morning, brother, and you can do that to me. And if you go home and you're a jerk to your family and you're yelling at your kids on the way home in the car, I won't ever know. So you can fool me. Yeah, he's a great guy. Seems like a good dad too. I mean, his kids are shaking in fear, but he seems like an incredible father. God's unimpressed. Says you'll reap what you sow. And he goes from comparison language to cultivation language. And I think it's important. He's moving from comparison to cultivation. You'll reap what you sow in your marriage, in your friendships, in your faith, with your kids, with your spouse, with your parents. You will reap what you sow. So, how often do you roll your eyes? I'm pretty good at the big huffing breath. That's mine while we're confessing here. That's my move. That's mocking. That's not honoring the person who's asked me to do something. When, when my 11-year-old's not in here right now? She's not in here. You know when your kid, you're putting your kid to bed or you're tucking them in and she's still at the age where she wants me to tuck her in and I'm never going to stop doing that as long as she asks, I'll do it. And then she forgets one thing and it's in the basement which is only two flights of stairs, but feels like about a 400-mile journey at 9.45 at night where you're like, I just am so tired. And then you get all the way back up and you're like, all right, I love you. Dad, I forgot one more thing. And usually, you know, when they're little, it's like, I need a water, I need a kiss, or I need a this, or I need a that. But it's always like there's one other thing in the basement is always what it is for me. And I turn around and go, no, I'd, I'd love to get that. I'd be happy to. <sighs> So I've just lied to her. I wouldn't love to do that. I would not be happy to. I'm actually really put out that you can't seem to remember this thing that you left in the basement, even though you leave it there every day. I should have brought it up, so I'm mad at myself too. But I mock you by turning around so you can't see me. I make my face. I roll my eyes. I give my big huffing breath, and I go get it for you anyway. That's deception. So I don't know what you do, how often you roll your eyes or give your big huffing breath or you mutter profanity that nobody can hear, but you mouth it. And if there was a camera on you, we would all see it. I don't know what's happening in that moment. But I know that we're not cultivating love and honor in that moment. 
We're not sowing respect and hope. We're not, we're not planting joy and gentleness. We're not doing the things that we're called to do. We're mocking. We're mocking the ideas of grace and mercy. We're mocking our loved ones. We're mocking God. In the raw feel of your heart, where the soil is turned over and ready to be planted with something beautiful and virtuous, we are instead sowing disunion and disrespect and disharmony, and we wonder why all of those things lead to dysfunction. How did I get so dysfunctional in this relationship? How did my heart get so cold to these people? I wonder, what have you been planting? You spend enough time rolling your eyes or muttering profanities behind someone's back, and eventually you will successfully grow full-scale discontent even if you didn't think you were doing it the whole time. You will one day reap what you are planting, is what Paul is saying. You will one day have a harvest of all the things you've sown. So what's being cultivated in your life? If the people in your life could see what you said of them, thought of them, when they turned their back, how'd that go for you? I say this a lot, whatever is in your heart, whatever your heart is really after, whatever you really want in life, you can actually have it. You can have what you're aiming for. You can have whatever you want. You can have it. If you want your version of the Jeff Bezos life with bigger boats and you want a model girlfriend and exotic vacations, you can go get that. You can work for that. You can have that. You can have Joanna Gaines's house. You can have stuff. You can have status. You can get whatever you want. And as you live your life, if those are the things you are aiming for, you can actually go and have them. Paul says anything other than Jesus plus nothing is going to let you down. No amount of superiority or inferiority, no amount of religion or irreligion, no amount of wealth or poverty, no amount of any of the things we think we're after to substitute for God or to add on to God, none of those things actually satisfy us and we end up dissatisfied and discontent and kind of mocking the world and huffing around because the thing we thought we wanted didn't deliver what we wanted it to deliver. There is a day when we reap what we've sown. Paul is saying this very clearly as he ends his letter. Every funeral I preside over, there's a line. When we're living in South Africa, 100 plus funerals. And the pastor, every funeral would say, absent with the body, present with the Lord. And he would usually whisper it. And something in that phrase from the scripture caught me just caught my heart. There will be a day that we are absent with the body and we are face to face with the Lord. And we don't live like that. And I have the privilege of sitting in people's hardest moments and whispering out this phrase and reminding myself that there will be a day that we are absent from the body and we are present face to face with our Creator. And there is judgment, and there can be destruction, eternity and separation. Or verse 8, or whoever sows to please the Spirit, Paul says, you get it. You get that and eternal life. He says, if you want to sow destruction, you'll get destruction. If you want to sow for status or sex or the thing that you're after, you'll get it. But with it, you'll get the emptiness that comes with it. Or if you sow to please the Spirit, you have exactly what you want. You have the Spirit of God. You have eternal life through Him. And you, alive in Christ, then do not taste death because your, your flesh has been put to death in Him. 
So Paul is attempting to show us who we are, to put up a mirror to say, look, you're being self-deceptive. Look, stop comparing yourself. Hey, stop this. You've got to cultivate a better life. He's trying to give us an encouragement to say you can still arrest that cycle now. You can still arrest that kind of doom loop of life where you're like, why am I perpetually unsatisfied? You can stop it today. Which is why in verse 9 he said, don't grow weary of doing good. Don't tire of trying to please the Spirit. Don't, don't try to go after the flesh. Don't tire of trying to please the Spirit. Don't tire of doing the right thing and getting no worldly reward. Don't tire of living a virtuous life and nobody notices. Don't tire of living out through the Spirit and the fruits of the Spirit are coming, but no one notices. It doesn't give me gain. I didn't get the yacht. Don't tire of that. Paul's saying the reward is still on its way. The harvest is coming. And this is hard for us in a digital age, isn't it? In a modern culture, comparison's never been easier. Never been easier. A new rage is always available. And Paul says, your time is coming. If you can just hold out, if you can just hold on, you will reap if you don't give up. And don't forget what counts. Verse 14. He says, but far, far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me. The world has been crucified to me, and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. For as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them, and upon the Israel of God. What counts? So he's saying it isn't in comparison. It's not going to be in comparison. Stop that. What really counts? He says, what counts is Jesus and Jesus crucified. Jesus crucified and resurrected. That's what counts. And so we can put away these comparisons and we instead take on new creation. You are hidden in him. And if you are in Christ, you are a new creation through Christ. We say back from Paul in chapter two, we said, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This is what Paul is bringing back in the last part of this letter. He brings back this, I have been crucified with Christ. It isn't me who live. It isn't my desire who live. It isn't my agenda. It isn't my priority. It isn't my glorification. It isn't my status. There's something else that's alive in me, and it is Christ alive in me. And in him, I then taste the glory that he is bound for. I get to participate in the joy of his resurrection. I get to know his eternity and his presence. And all of these silly things I've been chasing with my whole life fall away and don't feel important at all. Because in him, I have everything I've ever needed. I'm not bound to the old crucified pursuits. I don't need to compare or fake it. I've been renewed and redeemed and reborn and restored. Restoration is the ultimate act of love. You watch these home res restoration shows. You know what I think every time I see one of the really big home restoration shows? Should have just knocked it down, <laughs> right? I mean, you built a new house inside of an old house, and it would, I mean, geez, this show could have been like five minutes. Bulldozer, new house. You get it. Way to go. That's not loving, though. That's lazy. We just renovated a house in Bowling Green. 120 years old, it needed a new everything is what it needed, everything. It's an act of love because 
I'm going to tell you, restoration is really expensive. Restoration is really expensive. Restoring something old to its former glory is almost always more expensive than just building something new, which is why Walmart exists, right? I could restore that or I could throw it in the dumpster and I'll just go get a new one. Yet restoration is this act of love and it's expensive. It's important for us to realize that when we think about what it means to be restored. Restoration is an act of love and restoration is incredibly expensive. Your life and mine, you are a new creation. You live a restored life. You are God's restoration project. You, not you plural, not you general, not you, but maybe not me because you don't know what I've done. No, you are God's restoration project. And you are expensive. And God looked at you right where you are. God looked at you right as you are. God looked at you in your seat today, knowing every sin behind you and all of the sins left in front of you. God looked at you in all of the brokenness, and God said, you're worth it. You're worth the price. Restoration's expensive, but you're worth the price. I'll take on this project. I'm willing to take on the work. Jesus said, I love you, and I'm giving my life for you. And we hear that, and that sounds like that's a nice religious thing that we kind of, we believe that it's a thing that, yeah, feels distant, though. Jesus came to earth fully God, fully man, walked on the same earth you walk on, felt the same pain you felt, and in his godliness could look at you right now today and say, I'm giving my life for you. I'm walking through this life so that you might know what true life is. I'm giving my life for you. And so Jesus knows he's going to take the cross, and Jesus knows what it's for. It's for you, not you plural, not you general, not you, but maybe not if you knew what I did. It's for you. Jesus says, I'm giving my life for Beth. I'm giving my life for Don. I'm giving my life for Mark. I'm giving my life for Kent. I'm giving my life for Carissa. I'm giving my life one after, put your name in the sentence. Jesus made the choice to give his life for you, knowing everything you've been up to, knowing every wrong thought, knowing every hard inclination, knowing every place that you've ever been. Jesus said, I love you enough that I'm giving it up for you anyway. And so his plea is that you would flush all of the nonsense, all the comparison and the faking, the mocking. He says, forget all of that stuff. There's true life available and it's expensive life and I think you're worth it. That whoever believes in me, he said, walks with me, will know the joy of restoration, will know eternity in my presence, will know what true life is about. I don't know why you chose to be here today, but maybe that's what you needed to hear. That you're an expensive restoration project, the most expensive in history. It costs Jesus everything. And he would do it over again. He says, you're worth it. Maybe you came in weary. You're sick of a culture that doesn't get you or that you don't get. 
Maybe you're stuck in a comparison trap and you didn't even realize it until you walked in. You go, yeah, I live my whole life up or down. I'm always comparing. It's exhausting. Maybe you didn't even know it, but you've been mocking God for a long time. Making faces behind his back and taking that big, deep breath. Faking your way through life. Maybe your heart's grown cold. Maybe you don't remember what it feels like to be loved. Like truly, really radically loved. I would just suggest that maybe there's no coincidence that you're here today. That the message of the Bible and the message of Paul and Galatians, the message of God is that you are loved beyond your wildest imagination. That there is life for you beyond whatever it is you're going through today. That the battle you are currently in, big or small, public or private, that that battle has already been fought and won. And the message for you is just hang on not white-knuckling it through life, but hang on to Jesus, the one who can restore you, the one that can redeem you, the one that wants to show you that life is still on offer. The one that wants to reveal in every day that this life is not satisfying because there's nothing in this life for you. That what's, what's satisfying is the life to come and it's, it's the kingdom of heaven and so the thing you're going to find satisfaction in is not I need to die and get to the next life. It's when you bring that next life into this world, when you bring the kingdom of heaven into today. So when Jesus prays on earth as it is in heaven, he is instructing us in how to get the satisfying life that we long for into our everyday existence. If it isn't working, if it isn't fulfilling, if all you see is brokenness, you are today invited. Jesus wants you to be made new. Jesus is offering you true life. Jesus is offering to restore you right here and now. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are uh, overwhelmed we are overwhelmed at times by the complexity of life and how it compares the simplicity of your offer. Lord, if we're honest, um, if I'm honest, I'm always wondering if there's another hoop to jump through, if there's another box to check. And yet, Lord, you've been so clear that our life is in you that our hope is in you, that if we're simply willing to call you Lord, to walk with you, learn your ways, that's where we find you. That's where we find hope. And Father, I don't know why that seems unreachable at times or inaccessible, but God, I pray not just for me, but for everybody in this room that you would make that personally true, that we would understand the simplicity and the beauty of what you offer. God, break us down into our simplest form to show us who you are, to show us your beauty. Remind us of the cost. Find us following on the journey. Pray these things in the saving name of Jesus. Amen.